Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 9, Seeking Divine Revelation or Not. I'd also like to welcome you, all of you and those who are here and those who are looking at this through the webcast. And uh, our first fall series of lectures was the first one to start with um, doing a webcast. And uh, I want to acknowledge Mike and Nancy James with uh, Color My Media for setting this up. And I think we're taking things to a little bit of a higher level than last time. So I hope everything goes well. And I thank them for their preparations. We're starting a little bit late, so we'll go a little bit over. And I hope you don't mind that. So this uh, Lecture 9, we had eight in the fall. And these eight winter lectures We'll start with um, seeking divine revelation or not. And there's a whole different side to when you don't. So we'll, we'll be discussing that tonight. And this, uh, this is from Visions of Glory, about many layers that exist in the scriptures. He says, Anytime Christ ascends and speaks to a mortal, it is so weighty with meaning that mere words cannot convey the fullness of the truth given. The message is layered. First other words he speaks, and then there is a vastly larger body of truth you receive spiritually, layer upon layer, more truth than you can understand for years afterwards. One small moment in the presence of the Savior can last for a lifetime. This is the reason the scriptures are so powerful, because they contain the words spoken by Christ, and this spiritually layered truth is still there, spiritually interwoven with those words. It takes a lifetime of spiritual growth and obedience to be able to receive the deeper layers. They are truly there, and they contain the great mysteries and greater truths He desires that we acquire and enjoy in our lifetime. Any circumstances we find ourselves in, the answers are given within the recorded experiences of people who spoke with the Savior. That last sentence is interesting because when you read, for example, the book of Psalms, there's almost every kind of spiritual expression there that come from King David and a few others who have gone through the grind of life and the depths of descent phases and the heights of spiritual highs and all of the, all the emotions, spiritual truths are there embedded in people's experiences. And so it is a wonderful thing that so many have come before us have, have had these experiences and articulated them in the scriptures and in books so that we can take advantage of them. And I think we... We ought to be grateful to our God that that is so, because the gospel has become very much more rich than it was in the very beginnings when Moses first began teaching the Torah, the first five books to the ancient Israelites. One of the key words there is obedience to be able to receive the deeper layers. And so we read in Exodus how Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the ears of the people, and they said, all that Jehovah, which is translated as the Lord in the King James Bible, all that Jehovah has said, we will do and we will hear. And the King James translates a little bit differently, but it says in Hebrew, and in rabbinic school, I was explained that by the rabbis who said that first comes the doing and then comes the understanding, because the hearing is the same word as understanding as well. We will do and we will understand, in other words. And then there's the scripture in 
Moses about Adam. He gave unto Adam and Eve commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the firstlings of their flock for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. And after many days, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. And then the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Wherefore thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore, and in that day the Holy Ghost fell upon Adam. So you see the sequence again. First comes obedience to the commandments, even though we don't always know why they're there or why we have to do things in certain ways. But if, if they're from God, if they're in the Scriptures, if they come through prophets, then we're on safe ground. And doing those things brings blessings. And the angel comes and explains the whole plan of salvation to Adam and because with the words that the angel speaks also are layers of meaning that Adam gets. And then in that day, the Holy Ghost fell upon him and that helped him to understand things more fully. And so that sequence is the same sequence that we go through in every instance. And here is from Matthew where Jesus explains to the disciples, Why do you speak to them? They asked in parables. And he answered saying, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he will have great, in greater abundance. But whoever has not, from them shall be taken away even that which he has. And we have actually seen that in a number of scriptures in our previous series of lectures, which talk about the greater portion and the lesser portion of God's word. And those who stay with the lesser portion, as we'll see also in this series, will receive, will, will be, and event, eventually will be, you know, be deprived even of that which they have because they're not willing to go further into the greater things. Therefore, he says, I speak to them in parables because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, nor understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, Hearing you will hear and will not understand, and seeing you will see and will not perceive. For this people's heart has waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed lest any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand in their heart and be converted or repent, is another translation, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they, shall, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Okay, so what is the difference between the disciples and those multitudes to whom Jesus was speaking the parables? Well, it was simply that they were willing to take things on a surface level and were not willing to go deeper. And if they stay on that level, fine, but they can never come to the great truths of God that have the power of salvation and exaltation. So we're going to go back and visit what Moses said and then see it in context. Moses took the book of the covenant and read in the ears of the people, and they said, all that Jehovah has said we will do and we will hear or understand. So this to me is like following the prophet. These people were following the prophet. Moses was the prophet and they were following him. And that's all they were willing to do at that time. But look what happens to those who are willing to do more than that. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the, on the people, saying, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Jehovah has made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the firmament of heaven in all its clarity. 
and on the nobles of the people of Israel, that is, the 70 elders, he did not lay his hand, assuming that on some he laid his hand, but they saw God and did eat and drink. You get what's going on? You see the picture? On those who were down at the foot of the mountain, to them God was this larger-in-life reality, and they said to Moses, you go and speak with God, not us. You tell us what he says and we will do it. That's one level. And now, there are those who go to the next level, that's the son-servant category in the book of Isaiah, which we'll discuss next time. They saw God. And that's the whole idea. What is all our religion about if it's not to see God, to make sure our calling's election to be received into his presence? And they did. And they were willing to pay the price for doing so. 2 Nephi 28.30 Now, 2 Nephi 28, as you know, is about the precepts of men and how people are willing to settle for precepts of men which are not even the Word of God or a twisted version of the Word of God. And they're willing to settle for that, and as a result, they lose more and more light because they're not willing to figure it out, not willing to analyze what the Scriptures actually say and take that for their God's revelation, not what people tell them it says. That's a personal thing that each one of us has to come to terms with. Thus says the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And we discussed this in one of our previous lectures and saw in chapter 28 of Isaiah where this first appears, it is actually an indictment of God's people because they stay with the line upon line principle and not willing to go further to divine revelation. And blessed are those who hearken to my precepts. So there is good in it, however, and then an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. So with obedience comes more understanding, and the blindness that we have that comes from subscribing to precepts of men or from our non-spiritual lifestyles. In Isaiah, blindness to the truths of God comes from, from materialism, from worshiping the idols that we have in our culture. And there are more than ever in our culture than ever were in ancient times, I assure you. For unto him that receiveth I will give more, and from them that shall say we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. And that was the main crux of of 2 Nephi 28, which in the end ends up with people denying Christ. That's where that leads. 3 Nephi 26. This is Mormon speaking. And these things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught Jesus, taught the people, during his visitation to the Nephites. So the Book of Mormon that we have, which which a Mormon abridged, the whole story is just a lesser part of things, particularly the words of Christ. It is intended to be a lesser part to try our faith. And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people, that is, his people, the house of Israel, from the Gentiles, which is us, the Ephraimites that assimilated into the Gentiles, through whom the gospel is restored, as the Book of Mormon tells us over and over, according to the words which Jesus hath spoken. And when they shall have received this, that's the current Book of Mormon, and these words of Christ that he has been recording, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. Well, I get the feeling that We read the Book of Mormon, but we don't really believe what it says. Many of us simply don't believe the actual words that are spoken. Go through and test yourself, please. Go through any scripture, open the Book of Mormon, open up the page. Do you really believe what that says? 
Do you really believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? It's no respect to a person's that what they did can happen to you too? And if so, why aren't you following up on it and doing those very things? Because something's missing. Because you don't really believe it. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, or these words, same word in Hebrew, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. So with the words of Christ, with the words of the Scriptures, there's always a blessing and also a curse. Salvation and damnation. And once you have it, once you're exposed to it, it's either one or the other. It's a path that you, you continue on or discontinue on with fraught consequences. Isaiah 28, where that line upon line scripture is taken from. And it starts off, that passage starts off with this thing here. Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? Weanlings weaned from milk, those just taken from the breasts? Hardly. For it is but line upon line, precept upon precept, a trifle here it says, and a trifle there. The Hebrew, ma'at. Ma'at po, ma'at sham. So, it's actually an indictment here, and the Hebrew says, kavla kav, kavla kav, tzavla tzav. It's, it's parodying the rote method of learning in the Hebrew. But it's good if it's a starting point, right? It's the milk, however, not the meat. Corinthians, I could not speak to you, brethren, as to things spiritual, this is Paul, but only as to things carnal, even as to, if to babes in Christ. These are new converts, but by now, after Paul's preaching and their studying of the scriptures, they ought to be moving on to the next phase. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for heretofore you weren't able to bear it, nor are you able to bear it even now. This is Paul's lament to these people, these Christians, the early Christians. For you are not yet for you are as yet carnal. For because there is among you envying and strife, divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, aren't you carnal? And I might say, well, one says, I'm of Monson, and one of Packer, and I'm of McConkie. You know, it's the same thing. It's not disparaging the brethren. It's not disparaging Paul or Apollos or Cephas, as it's in other scriptures. It is simply the, the place where you're at. That's the space you're in. Then you're still carnal. And you're not going to see God on the mountain, as those men did. And that's Paul's lament. You're not moving on. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, and Apollos has, Apollos has watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, they're just servants of God, but God who gives the increase. So say, I'm of God. Follow Christ. That's what the scriptures say. Until you see him, until you have personal manifestations of him. That's in the scriptures. If you don't believe it, then you don't believe in the scriptures. It's that simple. That's not new doctrine. Hebrews, Paul to the Hebrews. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, considering you are dull of hearing. These are Jews, so... He speaks to them more in a more firm manner because they know exactly where he's coming from. For when at a time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. 
Well, because there are other principles beyond the first principles, right? Those are the basic laws of God. You might call them the preparatory gospel. And you have become such as those who have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone who uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And you know how Isaiah uses the imagery of babes and sucklings and toddlers and teenagers and, and adults and marriage couples and old people, old age people like myself, to show how you mature in the gospel. And he links it up with maturity in the gospel. And so it is here. It's a perfect analogy for us as followers of Christ, whether we're still a babe or whether we're moving on to adult stage. The strong meat pertains to those who are full age, who, because of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Well, you better have your senses exercised. That's why God says you love God with your might and your heart and your all, but also with your mind. So you need to exercise your mind and your senses to discern what the scriptures are saying and what happens in your life. You need to weigh things out, where you've erred, how that relates to the scriptures, and, and where you get things right, and how that relates to the scriptures, and what God's promises are in those regards. And if you're still on this level and you want to get to this level, then find out what it takes. Exercise your senses. That's what Paul is saying. Acts. The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night to Berea, who, arriving there, went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, that is, the preached word and also the scriptures, and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them did believe. So they had the scriptures, they had the law of Moses. They didn't have the Gospels yet. They just had Paul's word. The Gospels hadn't been written yet. But they had Paul's word and Paul's interpretations because he had visited them. And so they searched the Scriptures daily, every day. They made it a, you know, they, they set out a block of time, you might say, from their busy schedules, and they searched the Scriptures to make sure they got it right. Alma 17. These sons of Messiah were with Alma at the time the angel first appeared unto him. Remember the angel who came to Alma the younger and struck him dumb, or he fell dumb, seeing the angel. Therefore Alma did rejoice exceedingly to see his brethren, that is, the sons of Messiah. And what added more to his joy, they were still his brethren in the Lord, not in something else, not in someone else. Yea, they had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth, for they were men of a sound understanding and they have searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. This is a key. If you have not used to searching the scriptures diligently, you'll never get it. There are just too many layers in the scriptures. There's the easy surface level, but in Isaiah, what you read is only about 10% of the meaning or less. There's way more going on. There's the next level and the next and the next and the next after that. They had given, given themselves to much prayer that is accompanying their searching of the scriptures because... They asked to understand it clearly. They asked God to show it to them for His Spirit to guide them in their searches and to confirm to them the truths of things that they do learn and fasting, which goes with it. Well, fasting. Okay, we fast on the fast Sunday or two meals and then we give out. So my, my duty is done. I fasted. I fast. 
uh, well, if you want to get serious about your spiritual progress, there's way more fasting than that. Fast for a day. I mean, don't take my advice. If you have problems, medical problems, then, of course, ask your doctor. But fast. Fasting is part of the Lord's program. It cleanses the body spiritually so that the spirit may be more in tune. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority from God. Not just their own authority. You could feel it in them. They understood the scriptures, and when they interpreted them, they got it right. And you could feel it because the spirit bore witness. And this is about me, written by Hugh Nibley, and it's not here to promote me or anything like it, but it's to show you what Hugh Nibley picks up from one of my books called The Last Days. When Gileadi writes on the greater marvelous works, one of the chapters in that book, or Gentile saviors of the house of Israel, he goes all out to cover the ground with unprecedented thoroughness. Well, thank you, Hugh. I really appreciate you saying that. To this task, to this task he brings the whole workshop of tools for analyzing of which few of us are ever employed by our Mormon students and teachers. As he names them, they include types, parallels, symbols, metaphors, abstractions, code names, allegories, associations, comparisons, rhetoric, structures, context, connections, synonyms, categories, nuances, analogies, implications, prefigurings, insights, suggestions, paradoxes, foreshadowings, the leap of understanding, etc. I think there's 24 that he mentioned by name. So I don't think this is overkill. It just shows you how much is there. Like Spencer says in Bridges of Glory, it's just full of layers. There's always more to learn. The scriptures of the truth of God are exponential. The more you learn, the more there is to learn. Woe betide the man who says, I have enough. I understand it. I know it, the gospel. Don't tell me that stuff. And, you know, I feel sorry for those people because there is way more than they will ever anticipate if they hold that opinion. And he uses them with conv convincing results. By giving us these tools, he invites us to find out the truth for ourselves out of the scriptures. Because that's what my books do. They point you to the scriptures. It's like I'm quoting them now, except for this paragraph. And there is all the truths you'll ever spend a lifetime analyzing and finding out. Okay, let's talk about God's promise to his saints. And here is something that you can believe. Because God's promises. BNC 63. And to him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water, springing up unto everlasting life. Nobody else needs to know about that, just you and God. It can be in you and nobody would even pick it up. On the outside you look like other people, but on the inside the truth of God keeps coming to your understanding if you keep his commandments. As I mentioned in one of the previous several of the previous lectures, one of those commandments is searching the words of Isaiah diligently. When was the last time you did that? Spend time on it. First Nephi 10, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the way is prepared for all men, you might say for every man and woman, from the foundation of the world, if it so be that they repent and come unto him. Well, I've repented, I, I don't, can't think of anything else I need to repent of. Excuse me? Um, have you made sure you're calling election, sir? Uh, what is that? Well, received into the Lord's presence. Uh, not quite. No, not yet. Uh, well, then, isn't there something to repent of? Well, yeah, because the word repent means to return in Hebrew. It means to return and to repent. 
to come unto him. How? How do you do that? Well, in your heart, in your mind, you think about him. You gain an awareness of his presence with you. You speak to him through the veil. It's all geared to bring you into his presence. For he that diligently seeketh, that's him, and the truth, shall find him. And the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto him, unto them. It's a promise by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well as in these times as in times of old, and as well as in times of old as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. He's no respecter of persons then or now. He says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. He was at the beginning, he's at the end, and all in between, he's the same to every living soul. DNC 76. Thus said the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight, that is, fear him, that is, have him in respect and awe, in the Hebrew sense, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. That is, not in their self-righteousness, but in God's righteousness, and not in precepts of men, but in God's pure truth. Unsullied. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. And to them I will reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come, will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Another amazing promise. You mean me? Really? Well, yeah, that's what Spencer was saying. Me? Really? Who, who am I? He never thought he's anybody and still doesn't. But the Lord, Lord saw fit in his pleasure to reveal many things to him and is revealing the same or similar things to many others in our own time. Yea, the wonders of eternity shall they know and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. Not just now. And their wisdom shall be great and their understanding reach to heaven. Before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish. You mean the ones that publish books and... and uh, get tenure through their scholarly papers. Yeah, those are the ones that the scriptures come down on. Isaiah 29. The wise and the learned of the day. I mean, nothing, the wise and learned of the day, they're, Isaiah called them little sparks of light, truth, that compared to what the Lord reveals to you individually and can reveal to you personally, it's nothing. Before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will, yea, even those things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. It's happening today. Why is it happening today, do you think? Because as the world goes into wickedness, also there is a, a segment of people ascending to greater righteousness. The two balance each other out. So hopefully we'll be among those who are ascending rather than descending. Ether 4, another promise. I have written upon these plates, Moroni speaking, the very things which the brother of Jared saw. And there were never greater things made manifest than those which were made manifest unto the brother of Jared. Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them. And he commanded me, that I should seal them up, and he also hath commanded me that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Wherefore I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. Well, he sealed up the interpreters with the sealed portion that have those things that the brother Jared saw in detail. 
For the Lord said unto me, They shall not go forth unto the Gentiles, that's to us. The Ephraimites have come through the lineages of the Gentiles, until the day that they shall repent of their iniquity and become clean before the Lord. So this hasn't happened yet. We haven't repented sufficiently, and we haven't become clean enough before the Lord for him to reveal the brother of Jared's account to us in the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. And in that day that they shall exercise faith in me, says the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me, then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even unto the enfolding to them of all my revelations, said Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, and all things that in them are, and he that will contend against the word of the Lord, let him be accursed. And he that shall deny these things, let him be accursed, for unto them will I show no greater things, said Jesus Christ, for I am he who speaketh. Now this paragraph, these two verses are packed. I mean, I can only give you the surface level here. Exercising faith like to the brother of Jared. I mean, think of what the brother of Jared did. He built barges on faith. He did so many things on faith, and then he smelted the stones. Eighteen stones. Sixteen for the barges, and two, I believe, for the Yermitamim. Where did he get that idea? Well, he, did, he had enough faith to do it. And believe me, smelting quartzite at 2,700 degrees was not an easy task. So go and think about that. But do you realize what the Lord is saying to us? We've come through the Gentile lineages, Ephraimites who are to be saviors of the, members of the other members of the house of Israel. you realize what he's saying? That he's asking us to become pure, clean, sanctified, exercise faith as he did, to become brothers of Jared, to become end-time brothers of Jared. He was a Gentile, so that we can gain what the brother of Jared saw. Who? Just one or two of us? No. Lots of us. And then says, and he that will contend against the word of the Lord. What's that there for? You have, again, the contrast of those who reach spiritual heights and those who descend to the lowest spiritual depths. Because as soon as you have the one, you have the other. There will always be opposition. The more truth comes out, the more enmity is created by the devil against the truth. And so you're going to have his pawns giving you all kinds of flack. And you're going to have to withstand that and prove valiant all, through, all the way through it and deal with those afflictions that are foisted upon you without cause, which help you to grow spiritually and rise to that level that the Lord wants. So both are there simultaneously. And they are going to contend against the word of the Lord. Just be sure you're not among those, because now there are already people contending against what? Visions of glory and other revelations, near-death experiences that the Lord is choosing to send to the earth. And they're getting very angry at these people. But listen to what the Lord says a little later as we read it. To those, he's not going to show anything greater because they're going to keep on disbelieving and they're going to end up fighting against Zion as the Book of Mormon shows us. That those who contend with these things end up becoming part of the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth. In the end, they will deny Christ Okay, we continue with Ether 4, and this is the promise. Come unto me, O ye Gentiles, that I will show unto you the greater things, the knowledge of which is hid up because of unbelief. Come unto me, O ye house of Israel, 
So that's us and them. Who are the House of Israel? By Book of Mormon definition, it is always the Jews, the ten tribes, the last ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. It's never anybody else. Gentiles, Latter-day Saints, are not included among the House of Israel by Book of Mormon definition. Prove it anywhere. Later on, some of us may be numbered among them, but that's it, if you repent sufficiently. We are to be saviors to them because that's our role as Ephraimites, is to be saviors of the house of Israel. It was the mission of Joseph to his brethren of 12 sons of Jacob. He was a savior to his brethren during the famine when they came to Egypt, and that was a type of our role as Ephraimites holding the birthright role and, and privileges and obligation to the other members of the house of Israel. Come unto me, O ye house of Israel, and it shall be made manifest unto you how great things the Father hath laid up for you from the foundation of the world and hath not come to you because of unbelief. There are amazing YouTube videos out there right now talking about the configuration of stars, showing exactly the configuration of stars at the time of Christ's birth and at the time of his death and how they tie in with all the constellations, it just blows you away. So he was truly the lamb from the foundation, slain from the foundation of the earth because it was all configured in the stars. And, oh, I don't buy that. Old scriptures say it. Signs in the heavens. It says it right from the beginning of the scriptures. Signs in the heavens and the planets and the stars. Maybe you don't believe it, but it's all there. And when you look at some of those videos and what people have discovered through their diligent searches, it just keeps confirming that Christ truly is our Savior. Verse 15. When you shall, now notice this, when you shall. So it's conditional. When you shall rend the veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness. Who, me? Well, yeah, because you haven't seen these things yet, have you? No. So we're still in it. How simple is that? And hardness of heart and blindness of mind. So when you pray, pray the Lord to undo these things, to get rid of all your generational iniquities so you can come rise above all of that and come to this understanding. Pray in the earnestness of your heart that he might soften your heart, take away your blindness, get you out of this awful state of wickedness, then shall the great and marvelous things, great and marvelous, huh? Well, you know, that's the great and marvelous work. It's a word linked to the great and marvelous work in the Book of Mormon. What is that? That is the restoration in the Book of Mormon by definition of the house of Israel. As we discussed previously, not the restoration of the gospel and the restoration of the priesthood through Prophet Joseph Smith, but the restoration of the house of Israel by Book of Mormon definition. Look at it anywhere in the Book of Mormon. And that's what it is. Well, I never saw that. I never heard that before. Well, but it's there, maybe because you haven't looked at it. I'm always playing Satan's advocate here, right? So, because you, these are the answers you get. You get them all the time. And people think that they are above searching the Scriptures because they get it all in gospel doctrine or some crazy thing like that. Then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hit up from the foundation of the world from you. Okay? From the foundation of the world. Yea, when ye shall. Now, there's another when ye shall, as there was in the beginning of verse 15. So these two things are in parallel, in a synonymous parallel. And that's telling you things because 
Now you can equate the second when you shall with the first when you shall and tie these two parts of the scripture together. And the second one says, when you shall call upon the Father in my name with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, well, how do you get a broken heart? I mean, I'm doing really well financially and da-da-da, and I'm getting promoted to my job. I'm kind of proud of myself. How do I get a broken heart then? That case, Because I'm pretty self-contained and pretty self-sufficient. Well, I'll tell you. You make covenants with the Lord as you're taught, and you live up to them. And you make deals with the Lord to take you through it so that you can attain those glories that are spoken of in the Scriptures. And the moment you do that, and covenant with Him to do that, more than what appears on the surface, even in the temple endowment, when you do that, He will take you through it. You will go through descent phases, and believe me, you will have a broken heart. You will have tons of broken hearts and contrite spirits, because you will be crying in anguish for deliverance from Him. And that is the path he wants you to take. There is no other way except through the descent phases to the ascent phases. Through ruin before rebirth. Then shall you know that the Father has remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. And then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my, by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. So this is another thing that's coming up besides the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. John's revelations in the book of Revelation are going to be unsealed. Just like Isaiah's revelations have now been unsealed, you'll find them in my writings. That's not to tout anything, but go and tell me anyone else who's unsealed them in the way that I have and given you the literary tools for understanding them. There isn't anyone else. They have not paid the price for doing so. That's the only difference. I'm not any smarter than anyone else. Remember, when you see these things, you shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. That's when they're going to be fulfilled. Nephi says of Isaiah, In the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety the times when they come to pass. Because at that time, enough of us will have an understanding of Isaiah and will be looking forward to those things being fulfilled. And when we have that kind of faith and understand those things, they will happen. And not until then, because nothing happens without faith. So, we are to rend the veil of unbelief by calling upon the Father in His name, in Christ's name. How simple is that? That's what this synonymous parallel is telling you. And each one has conditions and things attached to it. DNC 76. Great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. So, here's an example of somebody breaking through, namely Joseph Smith and others with him, his companions, who paid an awful price to be where they were spiritually. And if we want to follow in his footsteps, in their footsteps, we will have to pay the same kind of price. Wait for it, it will happen. And the mysteries of the kingdom which he showed unto us. So this is a fulfillment of these promises of God that we've been reading in them, in Joseph and his companions which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us we should not write while we were yet in the Spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. And of course, because those things that you see in those kind of contexts are for you personally and individually. There are things among those you see and those you will see that are permitted for you to reveal if the Lord tells you so. 
And that has happened in the case of several near-death experiences lately that I have mentioned. But those very sacred things to you personally are not to be revealed. And I tell you, they are marvelous things. They are truly great and marvelous. And you'll never even conceive of them until you are shown them. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him. What is the definition of love? Oh, warm fuzzies or keeping his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. And purify themselves to the point where you are received into the presence of the Lord. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is a promise. You will not see God if there are impurities in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, and so forth. To whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves. For themselves, because that is the only way you'll gain exaltation. You may gain salvation on the words of the scriptures, but there are things that you need to know that God will reveal to you for yourself that will lead you to exaltation in his presence. There's no other way than that. You cannot rely on somebody else's words and teachings. Half the time, in my experience, when you are taught things, they get it wrong. The manuals, anywhere, books. And it just leads you down this garden path to more and more precepts of men. And you try to figure them out, and you've been indoctrinating these precepts of men, so when the truth comes along, you resist it. It's that simple. It's a programming. It's conditioning. You have to know for yourself. That's the Lord's way. It says it right here. And don't rely on me. I always say, don't rely on my words. And I don't give many opinions of my my own opinions anyway, because I'm a literary analyst. I analyze what it says, which is different from most other writers. That through the power and manifestation of the Spirit, while in the flesh, not necessarily near-death experiences, right? But in the flesh, they may be able to bear His presence in the world of glory. So in our physical bodies, we can be taken to the, to the, to the realms of glory and there receive manifestations of Him. Now, there are different degrees of understanding. This is some teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. To the brethren in his day, their meetings have probably become a lot like our meetings. Hopefully not. Our meetings can improve shortly. I'm looking forward to that. He says, How vain and trifling have been our spirits, our conferences, our councils, our meetings, our private as well as public conversations, too low, too mean, too vulgar, too condescending, for the dignified characters of the called and chosen of God. Max Princess said, if we could see what our spirits are, then we would know who we are. But in our bodies, he said, we had no idea. We have no idea who we are. So why go below what we really are? Why go down to the gutter, or not far from the gutter, to do ourselves those injustices? according to the purposes of his will from before the foundation of the world. I have a friend who's in this class, and he had a companion missionary, and he knows who I'm talking about, and who, when, he, when his companion saw him, he said, his companion was a visionary who had near-death experiences or visions of the premortal. He said, my goodness, 
you have really sunk low. He just confronted them with that. How low you've gotten since I saw you last kind of thing in the spirit world. Well, that's what Joseph is saying here. And before the foundation of the world, we all knew each other. We are called to hold the keys of the mysteries of those things that have been kept hid from the foundation of the world until now. Keys are there. We'll have to do is exercise them. Some have tasted a little of these things, many of which are to be poured out, poured down from heaven upon the heads of babes. Yay, babes in another sense, right? Upon the weak, obscure, and despised ones of the earth. Because those are the ones the Lord reveals himself to. Not the mighty, not the scholars, not the proud, not the learned. They haven't paid the price. They have full tenure. They get paid a handsome salary and so forth. How can the Lord use them? He can't. He's limited to those fishermen and others like them from Galilee. How can salvation ever come out of Galilee? Well, yeah, how can salvation come from these obscure people? E&C 121. How long can rolling waters remain impure? What power shall stay the heavens? As well might man stretch out his puny arm to stop the Missouri River in its decreed course, or to turn it upstream, as to hinder the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. It's a promise. But what's the key word there? What do you think it is? Anybody? Hmm? No? What's the key word? No? Saints. Not members of the church, but those who are truly saints, sanctified ones. That's the key word. They will get knowledge poured down upon their heads. Alma 26. Behold, my brethren, what natural man is there that knoweth these things? The carnal man, as Paul says, can't receive it. They can't know it. They just see the surface, see things. They're happy with it, fine. They don't want to go that route. I say unto you, there is none that knoweth these things, save it be the penitent, or those who repent. Repent, not just once, but it's, it's, it's your agenda to repent. It's the space you're in, one of constant repentance. Repentance, repentance all day long. Watch and pray always, lest you enter, enter into temptation, Jesus says. Always. Pray always. Not verbally, then in your heart. Yea, he that repenteth and exercises faith and bringeth forth good works and prayeth continually without ceasing, unto such it is given to know the mysteries of God, that's the higher truths, and unto such it shall be given to reveal things which never have been revealed. Well, only the prophet is supposed to. No, he's not. Here it says it. He will reveal things to them, and they will reveal them. It's happening today. The prophet can't reveal everything. It'd be impossible. There is way more truth than he can ever reveal in a lifetime. The Lord operates through saints, through those who exercise faith like the brother of Jared. To each of them, he shows those same things. Joseph Smith did it. The brother of Jared did it, and many others. To reveal things which have never been revealed, yea, it shall be given unto such to bring thousands of souls to repentance. You know, I know of people who, a 
are not members of the church who have read visions of glory and have totally come turned their lives around from that book, the LDS book. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say it LDS specifically. It's just somebody's experience who happened to be a member of the church and serving as a bishop today. Even as it has been given unto us to bring out these, our brethren, to repentance. So it's a pattern. It's a pattern. Vision of the glory. This first experience out of my body, an NDE, near-death experience, it's called now, created the recollection and refreshed my memory of who I was and who I might become through obedient choices. I then made a commitment, a covenant, you could call it, between myself as a spirit and my body, because he's finding himself in the spirit world as a spirit, and his body's over there dead or clinically lifeless that I would do everything that I had to do to allow my body to receive every change and upgrade and sancti- that's a modern word, and sanctification it needed in order to return to Father with me inside it. And he makes the point that we don't have to constrain our body and force our bodies like the Catholic Church would teach, but we have to bring our bodies up to the level of our spirits. Just while just in my spirit I was pure, complete, knowledgeable, and I knew exactly who I was and where I was from, my spirit was in the image of God. And I knew this very clearly. And as we've seen before in these lectures, our whole goal is to be recreated and reborn closer, ever more closer to the image and likeness of God. And when it says, man, Adam, was created in the image and likeness of God, in the beginning, yes, Adam and Eve were, but it doesn't say that anywhere else of anybody, of anybody else in the Scriptures. That's why Paul says our quest is to become, to attain the image of Christ, to grow into the image of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. It accords perfectly with the Scriptures, but not with our precepts of men, because a lot of us think, well, we're already in the image of likeness. But no, we're not, but until we make sure our calling election, as the brother of Jared did who saw the Lord. And by the way, if we will see the things that the brother of Jared saw, the first thing that he saw was what? The Lord, Christ, the Savior, revealed himself to him. When we do, by that time we will be in his image and likeness. By his definition. My spirit was the image of God, and I knew this very clearly. A spirit does not have a complete veil of forgetfulness when it is liberated from the body. I knew that I came from the Father and had the full potential to become like the Father. When I was in my spirit self, I was all of these things and there was no question or uncertainty about anything. Because when you're in those spiritual experiences, you intuitively know things because they're given to you to know, intuitively. With the experience comes the understanding. You're not left in the dark. You You may have a question, immediately ask the questions shown you. My spirit self only wanted to do the will of God and nothing else. Well, that is the point that we should reach. The greatest obstacle to reaching this point is our own stubborn self-will. The hardness of heart, blindness of mind that the scriptures talk about. I might say our damn self-will, because that's what it is. It damns us. But in the body, I was handicapped by spiritual blindness and moral weakness, and blinded by the screaming demands of the flesh. 
I was full of questions, uncertainty, pride, corruption, self-will, and desires for, for evil. Worst of all, I could remember nothing of my prior life with Father. I didn't even have a clue who I really was, like my friend and missionary companion. The contradiction between my two identities was overwhelming and paralyzing. When he saw the contrast, he just couldn't figure it out. I understood that this disparity was all the result of the fall of man and that I had to overcome those things by obedience to Christ's gospel and laws. How simple is the way? How narrow is the gate, but how simple is the way? We have to be willing to squeeze through it, to come unto Christ who is the gate, and follow that narrow path to the tree of life. Then in the next experience out of the body, I saw all of the sorrows and trials and struggles I needed to go through to refine that mortal body in order to actually arrive at the state I just promised I would achieve with my body. Well, because he wanted it. If you don't want it, you don't have to. And you won't have to go through these sorrows and trials and struggles, right? You can stay where you are and receive a terrestrial glory or a telestial one. In all honesty, after seeing all of these trials that I would go through, I couldn't see how I would ever make it. My ego was washed away because I immediately knew I couldn't do it any way except by the full and unending grace of Christ. It had to be a miracle of the atonement because I knew my weaknesses too well to think that I, or any mortal for that matter, was strong enough to do it alone. Now here was a man who was doing extremely well in his profession, but God knew him from before the creation of the earth, so who he knew what this man was capable of. And when he finally saw the disparity, he wanted it, and he would pay any price to attain it. And God knew that. Therefore he could trust him with, these, with this knowledge. And he hung on to it for ten years, well, finally, the Lord said, now is the time to show it. And here's an example of it. As he goes on his mission that he sees in this near-death experience, that he goes on in some future end-time state as a translated being. Now, one of the things that this whole book should possibly not be taken of as literally literal all the way through He's told me individually that a lot of it is metaphor. It can simply be taken as metaphor. So take that into account. But this is what was happening to him, what he was experiencing when he was ministering as one of the 144,000 to the house of Israel to gather them from exile to Zion or to stakes of Zion from all around the world. Because that's our role as Ephraimites. That's our birthright role to redeem the house of Israel to bring them back physically, um, to bring back physically those to whom he ministered spiritually and bring them up to the point of the church of the firstborn. As it says of the 144,000, their role is to bring as many as they can to the church of the firstborn, which is the elect level or the elect level of just men made perfect. Those who make sure their callings and elections, as the scriptures say. We quickly found that all of our senses and sensibilities were amplified once again. From then on, when we went to those we were to bless, because that's his mode of operation, what is operandi is to be ministering to others to bless their lives. We could see the whole process of their lives. I had enjoyed this gift a few times while out of the body, but never as a mortal. So now he's finally getting the gifts and privileges and blessings 
that he had as a spirit, or he was aware of as his spirit. Now it was with us continually. We knew how to minister to these righteous people, that is the elect, and how it would affect their lives. It was a beautiful vision, full of joy and peace for them, and we rejoiced to be a part of it. Well, we rejoice with Christ, because as he redeems us and we rise to that level, he rejoices in us exceedingly. And then when we do, we are as co-helpers and co-saviors and co-redeemers, we rejoice with him. We share in that joy and that peace and knowing that we're on the right path here. My mind grew, grew clearer and much quicker. Things that would have taken me long study before now came to me in flashes of understanding. I grew in my ability to understand complex situations and I could instantly come up with complex answers that were completely correct and inspired. My hearing was accurately attuned to the Word of God. Revelation became constant and unending. I no longer experienced temptations of any kind. I no longer walked through the mist of darkness. I didn't hold on to the iron rod because it became a part of me, a part of my soul, what I was. The iron rod, the Word of God, became a part of him. He personified the Word of God. That's why Jesus can say, he is the Word. John would say that of, of him in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. Jesus says, I am the law. He personifies the law because he lives the law in its entirety and keeps it, and he's the lawgiver. And he is the Word because he personifies it because it's all in him, the complete Word of God. And here is an example of others who can also become the Word and, and the law of God. That's why in Isaiah you have those personifications as well. It's one of, one of the deeper meanings of the, word, of the words of Isaiah. Okay, now we turn to the whole opposite side of this scenario. And you're going to see the contrast between the one and the other. In fact, let's take a break for a, um, for a few minutes, like two or three minutes. We'll come back and talk about those who harden their hearts. Because there are really only really these two choices, to rise up and be saviors or to be a salt as lost as saver. And it's interesting how the Book of Mormon takes the idea of hardening of the heart from its beginning all the way to the end where you see what happens to the Nephites when they are destroyed from the earth. And what happens to the Jaredites, the same thing. And what's going as a type and shadow of what's going to happen to the Gentiles in this continent, same thing. That's why these two types and shadows are given us as a forewarning. And you see the process of how a little bit of hardening the heart grows more and more and more until finally these people get so angry till they become enemies of God and finally fight against His Word and against His Lord's program and against the Lord's plan and end up in perdition. That it hath no place in them, wherefore they cast away many things which are written and esteem them as things of naught. So unless you have the Holy Spirit, you are likely to just discredit or discount really precious truths that are in the Scriptures or that you hear. And it's always a danger, a dangerous situation to be in. So the best thing you can do is have an open mind and an open heart at all times. Never feel that you know something and that something is wrong because there may be a different level of meaning that you haven't thought of before. Certainly in the book of Isaiah, in the whole book of Isaiah, 
is a huge paradigm that's integrated. There are checks and balances to get you on the path that keep you in check to make sure that anything that you interpret coheres and is in agreement with everything else that's in the book. And that is a beautiful thing. It's built into the text. And I would say into the scriptures in general. The Jewish approach to scripture is to say, this is scripture from God, what is it telling me? Rather than to say, oh, I know what that is about. And to use that as a proof text for proving some point that you want to make and taking things out of context is what happens. No, the Jewish approach is to analyze. The manner of the Jews is to analyze it and see how it connects up with other things, to look for deeper levels of meaning, as we read earlier. Alma 12, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. We've read this before, but here it is in the context of hardening the heart. And he that will not harden his heart to him is given the greater portion of his word until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full. Do you believe it? Well, I'm not sure my faith can stretch to that extent. Really? Well, why not? And they will, that will harden their hearts to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. So from them is, from them is taken away even that which they have, as we read earlier, that Jesus said in 2 Nephi 28. 1 Nephi 15. It came to pass that after I had received strength. Now Nephi had just seen a vision of the end from the beginning. And so he comes, he's feeling somewhat weakened, as the prophet Joseph Smith also felt weakened after he had a great vision. And any visionary, Spencer included. I spake unto my brethren, desiring to know of them the cause of their disputations. That is Laman and Lemuel, who were basically non-believers. And they said, Behold, we cannot understand the words which our father had spoken concerning the natural branches of the olive tree and also concerning the Gentiles, which are described as the wild branches that are temporarily grafted into the tree. And I said unto them, Have you inquired of the Lord? And they said to me, We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. While they've already made up their mind that the Lord makes no such thing known unto them. So they don't believe what the scriptures say, in other words. So if you're in that frame of mind that you don't think it could happen to you, then think again. And you're like them. You're not believing what the scriptures say. Verse 10, Behold, I say unto Behold, I say unto them, How is it that you do not keep the commandments of the Lord? How is it that you will perish because of the hardness of your hearts? Do you not remember the things which the Lord hath said? If you will not harden your hearts and ask me in faith, believing that you shall receive with diligence in keeping my commandments, surely these things shall be made known unto you. There is a way. It's that simple. Don't Don't harden your hearts. Ask in faith, believing you shall receive. Clean up your act and be diligent in keeping the commandments. You will know the Lord is under obligation to make it known to you. If he's not, it's because something you haven't done rather than what he's not doing. Well, notice Nephi's definition of the hardening of the heart, of their hardening of the heart. It's not inquiring of the Lord. His definition is, they have not asked. They have not inquired of the Lord. To him, that's hardening the heart. If you're not inquiring diligently, 
you were in the state of hardening your heart. Well, they were bad guys. They, you know, I mean, whatever rationale you might want to bring to the, to the, to the surface here, it doesn't matter. He's saying, you're not inquiring, so you're hardening your heart. Compare it with yourself. Second Nephi 22, the time soon cometh that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men. For he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. Wherefore, he will preserve the righteous by his power. And that's a promise. But again, the righteous by his definition. Not just the churchgoer who looks good to his neighbors because he does everything he's asked. No, it's the one who breaks through and gains these spiritual experiences that the scripture is speaking of. Those are the righteous. He will preserve the righteous by his power. Those are the ones whom he empowers. Even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, because the fullness of the iniquity of the world, of humanity, and the righteous be preserved even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. What he's saying here, isn't he contradicting himself? To me it says, well, the same fire that is destroying the wicked is going to preserve the righteous because they are going to be empowered to be delivered right through it or out of it. And that goes along with what Isaiah says, they will walk through the fire, through the waters, through the rivers, through the seas, wherever. Wherefore the righteous need not fear. For thus said the prophet, they shall be saved even if it so be as by fire. Why put not fear? Well, what are we to say? No fear, guys. Everything's going to be fine. All is well. No. He's saying that there will be a temptation to fear. The temptation will be to fear. But if we conquer our fear, then we will inherit these promises. Behold, my brethren, I say unto you that these things must shortly come. Yea, blood and fire, vapor of smoke must come, and must needs be upon the face of this earth. And it cometh unto men according to the flesh. That's in our mortality, in the end time. If it so be that they will not harden their hearts against the Holy One of Israel. Well, we know that many are doing that, and so it will happen. For behold, the righteous shall not perish, for the time surely must come that all they who fight against Zion shall be cut off. Cut off from what? Well, cut off from his presence and also cut off from his people, from being his covenant people. As the scriptures say, when you follow the, the word cut off all the way through the scriptures, you'll see he's talking about those two contexts. Cut off from his presence and cut off from, from being his people. So if you're a member of the church and you're going to be cut off, you'll no longer be a member of his, member of his people. Not in his book. And here also it is comparing those who fight against Zion with those who harden their hearts. It's showing you the progression of what happens to those who follow, excuse me, it shows the progression of those who harden their hearts ending up as those who fight against Zion. Jacob 6. My beloved brethren, I beseech you in words of soberness that you would repent and come with full purpose of heart and cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you. Full purpose of heart. So there's nothing lacking. You're totally committed. You're totally offered your whole soul to him. There's nothing else. Nothing left for you personally to do your own thing. Cleave unto God as he cleaveth to you. Because he cleaves unto you wholeheartedly or is willing to. While his arm of mercy is extended toward you in the light of the day, 
harden not your hearts. How did the arm of mercy come about? Well, through the atonement of Christ, of course, because he paid the price of justice for us, for our transgressions, so that mercy could operate, because mercy could not operate unless justice was satisfied. But it won't always be so. If we don't do our part, it will not always be so. Our part is to repent and take advantage of his mercy and not harden our hearts. The temptation will always be to harden your heart. Don't think it can't happen to you. It happens to everybody. Across the board, there's always the temptation to harden your heart against something. For why will you die? For behold, because that's the end result, it comes to a dead end. For behold, after you've been nourished by the good word of God all the day long, will you bring forth evil fruit that you must be hewn down and cast into the fire? No, not if we live by the word of God. But if we stop doing so, and if the Lord gives us an increase of his word, and we reject that word, then yes, it could happen very quickly, in fact. Behold, will you reject these words? Will you reject the words of the prophets? Well, these are dead prophets, so we don't have to listen to them so carefully anymore. I mean, all these rationalizations and excuses are out there showing how people harden their hearts. They've got an answer for everything. Anything you might say to them, they've got it all figured out. And will you reject all the words which have been spoken concerning Christ, after so many have spoken concerning him? We have umpteen witnesses, umpteen witnesses to his, to his reality. I was looking at the Bible code today. I haven't looked at it for a long time. And there was a Messianic Jew who was seeing the name of Jesus all over the place, Yeshua. Then there was a rabbi who used only the acronym of the name of Jesus. And he didn't see it anywhere except the acronym. Because he didn't look for the word Yeshua, he looked for the Jewish acronym of Yeshua, Jesus. The word Jesus means salvation. He personifies salvation. So he saw Yeshu, which is Yod Shin Ayin, and he says it's the same name back to front or so, as Esau. And Esau was condemned of the Lord. He sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Esau is a type of all those who reject their birthright, including us, when we reject our birthright. And so he's equating Jesus with Esau. And the acronym stands for, May His Name Be Blotted Out. That's, that's the acronym they use for the name of Jesus. So... Of course you're not going to find proof of Christ in the Bible code. Now the Bible code is full of truth. It's all there. Everything that's happening in the world today or has happened is all there. I checked it out for three days a long time ago and finally came to the conclusion, why am I doing this? Because it's peripheral knowledge. It's interesting, but it also can be a distraction from what you ought to be doing. And... I was interested to know, I was interested to see that there are Messianic Jews who believe in Christ even through that means or find proof of Christ. Will you reject these words? Will you reject the words of the prophets? And will you reject all the words which have been spoken concerning Christ after so many have spoken concerning him and deny the good word of Christ and the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost and quench the Holy Spirit 
and make a mock of the great plan of redemption which had been laid for you. For you. That's the process to denial from hardening the heart. The moment you harden your heart a little bit, the next step becomes easier. And the next, next step after that, easier. It's a process. Element 12. Thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in his infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. We can't even conceive of the infinite goodness of Christ, of God. It's beyond our present understanding, but it says it's infinite. It goes out, it goes forth through all the eternities. His desire is to bless and prosper us so that we can become like him and receive the same joy that he has and do the things that he does and rise up to those perfections and to that peace that he has. Yea, we may see at the very time when he doth prosper his people, just liken that to ourselves, yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks and their herds, in gold and silver, in all manner of precious things of every kind, in art, sparing their lives and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies, as he has done in this country, softening the hearts of their enemies that they should not declare wars against them, yea, in fine, doing all things for the welfare and happiness of his people, Yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample under their feet the Holy One of Israel. Yea, and this because of their ease and their exceeding great prosperity. Well, the Nephites underwent that and they show the pattern of how it happens. It starts with pride, self-sufficiency and ends with their damnation, our damnation. Helaman 12. And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, except he doth visit them with death and with terror, with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. Oh, how foolish and how vain and how evil and devilish and how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do, to do good are the children of men and how quick to hearken to the words of the evil one and to set their hearts upon the vain things of the world. As I was reading, I was counting the word how. The word how is a lament. How quick to be lifted up in pride, yea, how quick to boast and do all manner of that which is iniquity. And how slow they are to remember the Lord their God and to give ear unto his counsels. Yea, how slow to walk in wisdom's paths. Behold, they do not desire that the Lord their God, who has created them, should rule and reign over them, notwithstanding his great goodness and his mercy towards them. They do set at not his counsels and they will not that he should be their guide. Well, we should ask, as the apostles asked at the Last Supper, is it I, Lord? Because any one of us could be this. Maybe not all the way, but certainly to a large extent we could be doing this. And if we purify our lives, lives we take stock of ourselves and say, I could improve in this, I could improve in that, I could put away that, that less law and keep this higher law instead. Spend my time more wisely rather than that. I don't need that. That's not toward my salvation exaltation, so I'm going to spend it on that. And you'll see, soon see results. And it's an exciting journey. Elamah 16. It came to pass in the 90th year of the reign of the judges, there were great signs given unto the people and wonders, and the words of the prophets began to be fulfilled. And angels did appear unto men, wise men, and did declare unto them glad tidings of great joy, 
And thus, in this year, the scriptures began to be fulfilled. Well, I would say we're there. We're beginning to see signs in the heavens, the four consecutive blood moons on Jewish feast days, and other configurations in the heavens, solar eclipses, comets, and the like. We're seeing signs on Earth with the great destructions that are happening, and some really unusual things that are going on. And the heavens, just go on YouTube and look for anomalies happening today. And angels are appearing to us. Angels are, have appeared to those who are coming forth with these revelations, or their experiences of revelations. Nevertheless, the people began to harden their hearts, which you see at the same time, of course. Save, all save it were the most believing part of them, both of the Nephites and also of the Lamanites and began to depend upon their own strength and upon their own wisdom, saying, Some things they may have guessed right among so many, but behold, we know that all these great and marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. Well, again, lack of belief. And this pride, this insidious pride, keeps us from so much. And you see people hardening their hearts against these revelations that are coming forth. It's happening right in front of our eyes. And many more things did the people imagine up in their hearts which were foolish and vain, and they were much disturbed. And this is most of the people because it says, except the, except the most believing of them. Right? Just a small, major, a small minority of them. And they were much disturbed. For Satan did stir, stir them up to do iniquity continually, yet he did go about spreading rumors and contentions upon all the face of the land that he might harden the hearts of the people against that which was good, and against that which should come. We haven't quite reached that point yet, but I assure you it's coming. Read Helaman. President Benson taught that Helaman was the book for our day, the book of the end-time church, a type and shadow of us. More than I Behold, my son, I fear lest the Lamanites shall destroy this people, for they do not repent, and Satan stirreth them up continually to anger one with another. Behold, I am laboring with them continually. And when I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble in anger against me. And when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear lest the Spirit of the Lord has ceased striving with them. For so exceedingly do they anger that it seemeth me that they have no fear of death. And they have lost their love, one towards another. And they thirst after blood and revenge continually. And this is the cycle of hardening the heart. You progressively harden the heart to this is where you end up, angry and thirsty for blood. Where do you see this in the world today? You see it in, the, in ISIS, in the caliphate people. You see there the thirst for blood. They cannot get enough blood. The slightest pretext, anybody that doesn't conform to their twisted view of life, they behead them or they kill them or they... Whatever they do to them, they crucify them. And it's going to spread. It's going to come among us. Believe me, it'll be a scene of blood and horror on this earth because the destructions are coming. The scriptures have said it. And now, my beloved brethren, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently, for if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform while yet in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. And I think that's the last one, the last scripture.
So we know what happens to the Nephites, but all the way through to the very end, there are those righteous souls, prophets of God, and righteous disciples of Christ who individually ministering to the, even these hardened people and bearing testimony to them at, at, the risk of, at the risk of being killed, at the risk of their lives being taken, at the risk of being tortured. And go through history and see all the examples of how the wicked you know, have killed the righteous and the prophets and how many in that day, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, will think they do God a service when they kill you. All right, so we have about 10 minutes or so, maybe 15 minutes, to answer questions. Some of you have questions. Uh, what, is, what is my definition of iniquity? I don't have a definition. I just have the scriptural definition. And um, there is a distinction between sin and, and iniquity. And uh, iniquity is that which, where it says in uh, Moses, the iniquities of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation which means that, that when a person transgresses, they get in a state of wickedness, they sin, and with the sinning comes more wickedness. And then it begins to kind of shape into, into what's called iniquity, which are habitual patterns and dysfunctional patterns that have consequences. Well, all sins have consequences. The curses of the covenant, right? But the consequences can come upon succeeding generations. The iniquities of the fathers and the heads of the children. Not the father's sins, as it says in Ezekiel, the sins of the fathers cannot come upon the heads of the children because the father is a father is guilty of his own sins. His sons or his children are not guilty of the father's sins. But they can suffer because of the father's iniquities. The dysfunctional patterns that these sons of a, in a family can inherit the curses of the covenant have come upon those who have transgressed that succeeding generations inherit. I'm the first member of the church in my family, and I have inherited iniquities from my ancestors. So what is my job? What do I do? Play the victim and say, oh, it's not my fault. Why me? Um, da, da, da. No, I say, I want to take ownership of these iniquities, and deal with them, and so that after dealing with them, I can overcome them and get rid of this iniquity. And not just for myself, but for, for succeeding generations and for past generations. So that's what Abraham did. He was born into a cursed situation, and there was a satanic cult in his day, sacrificing virgins on this altar and others. They wanted to sacrifice him. And Abraham was born into this cursed condition, and he inherited this curse through no fault of his own. But it was because previous generations of Abraham, including his own idolatrous father, had brought these iniquities upon this family. So what did Abraham do? He took ownership of it. And he made deals with the Lord to get rid of it. And the Lord took him through these situations where he basically had to sacrifice put us all on the altar. So we can turn the evil to good, or the Lord can turn the evil to good, and we, in our generation, and the pioneers who came to Utah, who were fresh converts, did this as they went through the pioneer trek. Many of them paid a horrific price 
to dispense with those iniquities. I mean, they came, they came as the pure in heart. Many of them came as the pure in heart. They had paid the debt of those iniquities. It's called expiation of iniquity. I know Christ pays the debt of our transgressions, of our sins. But they're also the results, the after effects of the transgressions. And we have to take ownership of those. And I mentioned once before how the people of, of Alma the Elder, who were converted through the preaching of Abinadi, one of the priests of King Noah, who went to the waters of Mormon and covenant with the Lord to bear each other's burdens and take his name upon themselves and so forth. But the Lamanites discovered them, so they fled and established themselves in the land of Helam, and there the Lamanites discovered them. And King Noah discovered them the first time, then the Lamanites discovered them in the land of Helam and put them into bondage, and bondage is a covenant curse. But they had cleaned up their act. They were not guilty of any sin, but they had still inherited these covenant curses, generational covenant curses. And so they were put in bondage until they took ownership of it. And there came a point when they had expiated those iniquities through the, their afflictions and the things they, su they suffered at the hands of Lamanites, the bondage, the enslavement, the harassment. And eventually the Lord said, enough, and took them out of there and released them. From there, they came down to Zarahemla, and there they became the nucleus of the church, which was then established in Zarahemla among the Nephites. So how great is that? They went full circle from those barely repenting all the way through expiating their iniquities to now becoming the foundation of the church in Zarahemla. How beautiful is that? And there is a pattern for us. There is the fullness of the gospel in action when you know where to look for it, how to look for it. Yeah, I believe the Book of Mormon. Yeah, but do you really understand what it says? Well, I didn't know that before. Well, but this... That kind of stuff all through the Book of Mormon, right? So, so after Abraham had expiated his iniquities, he had Isaac. I don't know if it took 80 years, but he was 80, I think, wasn't it, when he had Isaac? He had Isaac, and Isaac was pure and holy, and he had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph. And there you have the blessings of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation, and so it has been in our church since pioneer times. The blessings of those pioneers and the sacrifices that they paid in expiating their iniquities, their generational dysfunctional patterns that they had from previous lives in continent in Europe, now those blessings would accrue to the successive generations. But here we are, several generations removed from them, so what's happening today? We're throwing it all away. A lot of it is being thrown away. Not all of us, hopefully not, because we have a, a work to do to the house of Islam. That, that's a scriptural definition because I'm using scriptures as the example and quoting scriptures, what they say about it. You're welcome. Yes? Yeah, it's a little bit of a sensitive subject. My opinion of the book Visions of Glory, I think I've made it pretty plain what I'm attempting to do is showing that what's in Visions of Glory is coherent with our scriptures. I've read the book four times. I've given lectures on it in five different states. And I know the man personally. And there's nothing in the book to me that does not agree with the scriptures. There are some things, as he said, that are met metaphorical, but I have no problem with any of it 
in the last third or the first third or any part of it. He uh, did say that only about a third of his visions are in that book. So there's more that fills out the picture, and that, and one third of it is in his, in his manuscript or in his notes, and the other third, as I mentioned here before in this class, was taken from his memory. Because there are those things concerning the servant and the Antichrist that are hidden from the world at this point in time until they actually show up. And that's for a purpose. Because the Lord, those things will divide the righteous from the wicked, from those who are pretending to be members of his church, basically, and those who are really members of his church, who embrace the whole gospel. And you'll see that. And therefore those things are withheld as the, the coming of the Lord was withheld from the Jews until he came to them, his first incarnation in the time of Christ and the apostles. So, this is the way the Lord does things, and we can expect the same thing to happen in our day. But those things are withheld from us. They're likely, very likely, the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. They're in the Book of Revelation, if you know where to look. They're in Isaiah, if you know where to look and put the pieces together. They're all through Isaiah. They're in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. Concerning the servant. But whenever a person sees the end from the beginning, who is a prophet in writing the scripture, they say, I can't tell you more. The Spirit forbids mine utterance. So they quote Isaiah or some other way to get around it. So they, they're telling us what to do by, by doing that. So a lot will hinge on our faith in that day. Yes. <laughs> right, I would recommend my translation Isaiah on Isaiah because that's the one I did first of all because I was thinking... The King James is not a big, it's not a help, it's a hexia hindrance. I want to translate something true to the Hebrew and yet contain as much of the meaning as I could. So, the one that I would recommend, but there's no translation of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, that I can really recommend fully. I wish I had time to do the whole Bible. But I don't know Greek either, that's Greek to me, but I wish it could be done by someone who had the spirit of revelation and understood the fullness of the gospel. But in the meantime, I would suggest the New International Version and the Interlinear New International Version because you can compare it with the Hebrew and with individual words as well. And so you can get an idea. But the New International Version was also done by committee. The committee's compromise and so you... You won't get the full thing either, but and sometimes you'll get a few mis mistranslations of the ideas of men, precepts of men thrown in there. One of the things that I noticed with my translation of Isaiah, and this is where the, the, the New International Version, the NIV, cannot go, is that scribes would have memory lapses because all these scriptures were memorized by scribes. And when Israel was destroyed and their scriptures were destroyed, those scribes are spirited out and would regurgitate the messages or the, the words of the scriptures from beginning to end. And scribes would memorize whole books or, or half of a book. And sometimes they would forget a word or a phrase or a verse and then they would remember it just a little later and then they, the scribe would put it in there. And out of context. And so I'd find these things and I'd realize they were out of context 
I've plugged them back in where they should go in a natural order, and then I'd make a footnote in my translation saying this is what I did. And so there's not enough of that of any significance, but the Masoretic text that's come down to us from the Jews, the Ben Asher Codex, is the most authoritative Hebrew Bible that we have of the Old, of the Old Testament, from which this book of Isaiah is taken, that I translated. And when Jesus said, when the Book of Mormon says, these things came forth from the Jews in their purity to the Gentiles, that is true. They are in their purity. And that's the Hebrew Bible. There is so little that's wrong with it that it hardly deserves mention. It's only after it comes into the hands of the great abominable church that they take away many plain and precious parts out of it. And many covenants of the Lord have they removed, and we spoke about that in previous lectures here. These lectures will be available in videos when Mike and Nancy James from colormymedia.com get them ready for us. Thank you. Any other questions? Just one more quick online question. Oh, yeah, sure. And then that will be the last question. Uh, no, but I would ask you to be aware of the blood moons, and you can go on the Internet and look them up and what their significance is. You can look them up in all different kinds of contexts. Some of the, uh, some of the background of them, what happened in history when there were blood moons, in consecutive blood moons, tetrads, like this. Certainly something very significant to the Jewish people. I could make guesses at it, but I don't want to be quoted as that, so I'll refrain. But I would say these are definitely some of the signs in the heavens that were being given today. And the times, these, this year and next year, are very, very significant years for us and for the Jewish people. Because the blood moons appear here, and the fourth one, I believe, appears in Israel as well. So, yeah, it's a big connection with the Jews, for one thing. And also with us, because we are currently the covenant people of the Lord. Yeah, the Shemitah is the seventh year, isn't it? The, the year of rest, or the year of the land, every seven years there's a Shemitah year. And then there's often followed by, well, every 50 years or 49 years by a Jubilee year. So these things are coming forth now. So that makes it significant also because it's just another nuance attached to the blood moons, you know, that it happens to be a Shemitah year. So this is another... Yes. All right, I think we'll end it there. I thank you all for coming. And for those of you online, thank you too. And hope to see you next week. Same time, same station. Bye-bye. This concludes Lecture 9, Seeking Divine Revelation or Not. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.